brought to you from Melbourne, Australia. This is the Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players, where we talk badminton, celebrate local heroes, interview players from all walks of life, and push you to grow as a player and a person. Introducing your hosts, Jeff and Henry. Hello, badminton community. Whether you're a long-time listener or this is the first time, welcome to another episode of the Badminton Podcast, proudly sponsored by Valam Web. Now, my name is Henry, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Jeff. Together, we're the co-founders of Valam Web. So let me take you back to the last time you went to the badminton courts. Have you ever seen traditional badminton clothing being worn outside of the courts? And how many people do you see wearing badminton clothing on the court? Well, at Valant Wear, we're different. We're a brand for people just like you, wanting to show the world how incredible badminton is while looking great on and off the court. So check us out and shop at www.valantwear.com where there's plenty of free resources as well that can help you with your game. We recently just started to stock masks as well, so definitely go check those out when you're on the website. And if you wanted to follow us, you can follow us on our social media at Volantware, B-O-L-A-N-T-W-E-A-R. Now, before we get started, we just wanted to thank you, the listeners, for making this podcast possible. Without you, there wouldn't be a badminton podcast, so thank you for continuing to listen and to support us. Jeff and I really love connecting with the badminton community and sharing their stories with everyone so that we can all learn to be a little bit better as players and as people. So thanks for tuning in. Now, that being said, it is completely self-funded and supported by our full-time jobs, so we would love your help if you can help us. In order for us to keep releasing regular and high-quality episodes as so many of you enjoy, we have set up a Patreon account where you can pledge just a few dollars per month, which will help us a lot. We really appreciate those who have supported us so far and want to give a shout-out to our all-access patrons, Rajiv Rai, Yves Lacroix, and the guests for our podcast episode after this one, Derek Ng. So thanks so much to all of you for supporting us on our podcast journey. And if you want to play your part, visit patreon.com slash the badminton podcast and it'll be in the link in the description below. Now I'll pass it on to my co-host Jeff to introduce our exciting new guest for today. Thanks Henry. So today our guest is David Turner. He followed his mother and father onto the court. He's a former Australian badminton player who became a state coach, then internationally BWF qualified umpire in 2001. From there, he's been very active as a court official for the BWF. He's traveled all over the world to umpire at the top BWF events. Some of these events include being a line judge at the 2000 Sydney Olympics, being an umpire at the London 2012 Olympics, and he's also been the umpire at big events in badminton, such as the Sudamin Cup World Championships. He's now a board member of Badminton Tasmania, where he resides in Australia, the Oceania Officials Committee, the chair of the Oceania Assessment Panel, and a member of the BWF Assessment Panel as well. Outside badminton, he has 40 years of experience in teaching and conducting music as well. Now, he's been recommended to us by a few different people, including Jonathan Stagg from Tasmania and Yves Lacroix, and they both said that you'd be awesome on this podcast. So we're really happy to have you on, David. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks, Jeff, for the invitation. I'm quite excited to be involved. Wonderful. Excellent. So first things first, in terms of the music, because we're going to talk about a lot of badminton things in this podcast, but what musical instruments do you play? And what's a bit of background for that for 40 years you've been teaching and conducting? Oh, what instruments do I play? Basically, what instrument would you like me to teach you? (laughs) I've been a career music teacher and I run band programs. So I teach largely everything you blow, hit or strum. So from trumpet to flute to clarinet to drums to piano to guitar, I teach them all to a degree. I've taught in primary schools, I've taught in high schools, I run community band programs and I'm still doing that. But probably um, my go-to instrument the majority of the time is my guitar. Whenever I travel within Australia, I try and bring my guitar and if I travel overseas, I try and borrow a guitar. A guitar and having a few things is a great part of my life. Definitely. I just love, okay, so this brings me back to say school camp times or just any kind of camping where you're around the campfire and someone's got a guitar and they're just playing the well-known tunes and everyone's singing along It's and you hear the crackling of the fire and we've got the s'mores or the, the marshmallows and it's an awesome experience. Has that been something that you've been doing for many, many years as well? Well, so I'm also a caravan, Jeff, so uh, as I travel around the country with the van, then the guitar comes out uh, in all sorts of places. And as I travel overseas with my badminton, to a degree now, my greeting is not so much, G'day, David, how are you? But it's, G'day, David, do you have a guitar? <laughs> I've sung all over the world, from Africa through to Europe, through New Zealand, through Australia. It's part of what I do. But my life has been music. My profession has been music and, uh, and probably even more dominating than my badminton. But they've both been big parts of my life. Wow, that's awesome. I remember back in my school days, I used to play the trumpet and I was part of a concert band as well as a stage band. And I really enjoyed the stage band because we played a lot of jazz and blues and songs that we know. In terms of your conducting, are you more of the like the concert bands or stage bands or all of the above? It depends on the time of the week, Jeff. Currently, I'm conducting five bands, even though I have retired. <laughs> wow. But I have a senior concert band. I have a, a jazz band. Um, I have two junior programs and a primary school band that I run as well. Plus, I also have run musicals. Um, so the, the band did a musical. So I'm the pit conductor and I've run a number of musicals as well. So, And I'm hoping to be able to do one next year, depending on the COVID situation. So, yes, I run concert bands, jazz bands, junior bands and primary school bands, the whole bit. Oh, fantastic. We should have got you to bring a guitar along for this podcast and (laughs) and play a few tunes. Usually sits beside my computer, Jeff. Yesterday I had a a Zoom meeting with Batman Australia and uh, they had five minutes left and they said, oh, you know, what are you going to talk about? Oh, someone's singing a song and everybody said, David, where's your guitar? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, awesome. um, This is the right time to ask you if you've got the guitar right next to you now, David, that you could play us a bit of a tune. I'll organise my wife to go and get it at some stage for me. (laughs) Okay, that sounds amazing. So having a listen to that, it definitely doesn't sound like you're retired. certainly sounds like you're doing a lot more now than maybe you have in the past. So is retirement really on the cards at the moment? Look, retirement means I have a bit of choice. I don't turn up to work every day and have to have that commitment every day. What it's given me is the opportunity to maybe do a little bit more badminton, which I haven't been able to do so much when I was working full-time. But I also have the opportunity to be involved with things. So I am still running bands, as you heard. I'm doing a bit of relief teaching, but I've managed to, you know, fit in a lot more badminton uh, into my schedule. But occasionally, and I'm not very good at it, but occasionally I've said no. So that's a big difference in retirement. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, the ability to have the choice 
Like a lot of the times when we bring guests onto the podcast and we talk about badminton and why badminton, instead I'm going to ask you why guitar compared to all the other instruments as to why it's your go-to and why it's your favourite. Well, look, I started playing recorder a long time ago in primary school, then I went to trumpet and I love playing in groups and that's what those instruments are about. Jeff, you said you're a trumpeter and the trumpet is great to play in a group. But it's not something that you can take to the beach, which you suggested. Yeah, it's not yeah. something that um, everybody's going to enjoy in a hotel room when I'm around. The guitar offers the opportunity, obviously, to sing and play. I'm not the world's greatest guitarist. I'm not the world's greatest singer, but, but I've literally sung and performed all over the world. The other thing that I say about my music is that I don't have the ability of so many of my colleagues to be multilingual. I have Australian English, which I speak to quickly, and that's my language or my only language. But as I travel the world, I can pick up my guitar and I can sing songs in English and people understand that. So it's my travelling language. So the guitar and singing is, is my language to communicate with people all over the world. And look, I can tell you stories of sitting in a hotel room in Pretoria in South Africa at World Juniors and, and singing a song in English and had a multicultural cast in the room and they all joined me in English singing the song. So it's something mm. I remember forever and a day. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just something that does just cross all the barriers, doesn't it? Everyone loves a good song and music really does bring really good feelings out often in many people. Sometimes I'm just listening to songs that I really enjoy, especially live. I absolutely love live music. And sometimes I just get goosebumps just listening to it just because it's so nice to hear. Just to be able to hear people play, there's no arguments, but Part of the joy, Jeff, is to be able to join in with other musos and play along with other musos. And there's a few people around the world that play the guitar and we've joined together in different situations. And from a purely personal point of view, I've done some gigs at home here with my son and, um, and how lucky am I to be able to sit down and, and do some gigs together with my son and making music together. So one of the great joys is to make music with other people. Yeah, absolutely. Just to prove you that I can, I just, you know, put it out. <laughs> So there you go. I do play the guitar. Okay, awesome. cool. Awesome. That's the first for our podcast, so that's fantastic. <laughs> you had something to everyone. I love how it was a bit of a dynamic entry as well, David. <laughs> we should have played your own entry. We shouldn't have done the normal podcast entry. We should have just got you to sing your own entry. You, we let, Are you good at improvising? Well, I could create stuff, absolutely. Okay, so maybe at the end of this podcast, when we sign out here, we'll get you to sign out with a bit of a tune. Is that okay with you? I've got no problems with that at all. The guitar is beside <laughs> me, as you heard. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> okay, fantastic, David. So let's jump into the badminton side of things now. There are a few things that we said in the introduction just about your badminton history, but from your perspective, what's that been like for you and how did you get introduced to the sport? Okay, badminton is a lifelong passion as well. I started making music in primary school, but um, by that stage... I knew about the sport of badminton. As I did say briefly, and you said in your start, my father was Australian badminton champion. From 1958 to 1966, my father was the number one badminton player in the country. He went to the Commonwealth Games in 1966 in Jamaica, the first time that badminton was performed in Commonwealth Games. Different world then. He was number one player, captain, coach and manager of that team. <laughs> well, <laughs> That was the story. So my father was Australian champion and one of the leading players of the era. My mother and my father did one in Australia mixed together. My mother's sister and my father also won in Australia mixed together. Dad won other three other uh, mixed doubles with another Tasmanian. So by that stage of my life, obviously, I knew that badminton existed. But my father retired when I was eight. 
I really didn't have a huge amount of interest in the sport. But I played sport as a young person and at about 15 decided that badminton was a game that I wanted to play because obviously I knew about it and my parents were supportive of it but were also happy for me to play other sports. So I played cricket and I played hockey and I played tennis and I played basketball, table tennis. You know, I played lots of sports. So the background was there. But at 15 I was playing badminton a bit and I made it an under-17 team at that stage as a 15-year-old. So that was the start. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so... Once you started playing badminton, what's the journey from you becoming firstly a player, excelling as a badminton player, and then becoming a badminton official? So I played underage badminton through to under-21s, and then I made the senior team as a 19-year-old, and I played 11 Clendon and Shields as a player. During that time, during my playing time, and this is mid-1980s before you guys were even born, during my playing time, I also, we all had to umpire at that stage, and I did some umpiring qualifications. So actually became a national level umpire, qualified umpire in the mid-80s as I was playing. I also did a coaching course at that stage, so I was qualified state coach, um, a qualified Australian umpire and a nationally ranked player at that stage altogether. That was part of what I enjoyed doing. I quite liked umpiring, but at that moment in the 80s and early 90s, I wanted to be a player. So I played right through to there, and then I returned to umpiring a bit from the early 90s Then I coached for a couple of years and the coaching time was too much and so you couldn't do it all. So I I left the badminton umpiring behind a bit. And then I returned to it in the late 90s and we had a chat with Peter Cocker at the time who just qualified at BWF and they said to me, we're not doing any assessments up until the 2000 Olympics, but post that there is a possibility that we might send you to look at being international, moving to international level, which was, was quite exciting but quite daunting. So... 2001 turned up and I got a nod to say that we're sending you to Seville. Would you like to go to Seville in Spain to be assessed for BWF? That was a self-funded trip at the time, but that's, you know, the opportunity was there. So I went away to Spain to Sudaman Cup and I was assessed for BWF at that stage. And I have to say I was very inexperienced. The opportunity in Australia in that time to have international umpiring practice was minimal. And we didn't travel as much overseas as we do now. But anyway, I went and I umpired and we got a little bit of feedback, told me a couple of things that they didn't think was very strong and they also said I was very inexperienced, which is probably a fair call. Anyway, I worked really hard at their recommendations and I improved greatly over that week of the Sediment Cup and at the end of the week they said, we we think you have the potential and we would like to uh, offer you a place as a BWF accredited umpire. So pretty exciting moment. Awesome. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it and lots of hard work during that week. So when you said you were inexperienced and you had lots of things to work on in your umpiring skills, do you remember what the focus points were for you for that particular week? One, one in particular I remember is that I followed the shuttle in the air. I come from Tasmania. We play in venues that are not designed for badminton, so you have to look up because you can hit the roof. <laughs> Internationally, that's not an issue. So, But, you know, even around Australia in the venues at that particular time when I was a player, there was still always a potential. And my first carnival was Albert Park in the old air raid shelter in Melbourne, and you could almost touch the roof with your racket on the edge. So that was the national venue at that stage. So that was one thing that we had to work on. The ongoing challenge of an umpire, the most difficult thing we do is service judging, and that was at the time very difficult and still is quite challenging. So there was an area that they pushed us to be able to develop my skills in that area. I had a strong voice, a clear voice, a clear approach on the court. I had a good demeanour, so they were positive about that. 
those two things came to mind very quickly. I mean, this is 20 years ago now, so uh, it's interesting. You look back, things have changed a great deal and there's a lot more processes and a great improvement in the development of umpires today. Yeah, sure. This wasn't part of the planned questions that we had for you, but you did talk about the service judge role. And I'd love to just dig into that a little bit in terms of the changes in the service rules, which happened a little while ago, but how are you feeling in terms of the accuracy of the current way that we assess the serve? So through the plastic lens where you line them up to see whether the shuttle hit below that certain level. Okay, so just a very quick resume. You know the story, I'm sure, guys, but you know, when I first was umpiring, my role was to watch the head of the racket to make sure it was below the wrist, to watch the head of the racket to make sure that the shuttle was struck below the waist, to be able to make sure we hit the cork, to be able to make sure that the action was smooth. Um, there's been a whole lot of variations. Oh, and, of course, to watch the feet as well. So there was a great deal of subjectivity in there because you don't have an X-ray vision and to know where the waste is, and that physically has changed over the year. So there was still subjectivity about that and people's judgment. So there's been an awful lot of discussion, and again, you're very aware of the world, about how to develop that. So they have created these frames with the two pieces of perspex and lining up to be able to say that the shuttle will be now struck below a particular height, 1.15 metres, and we have a device to be able to assist that. Is it perfect? No. Is it improved greatly? In my humble opinion, yes. I think we have less concerns from the players because there is less subjectivity about this. We've got to make sure that our devices are accurate and that we're running them accurately and we do lots of training with people with those. I think it's a move in the right direction and I think that, again, the players are more comfortable with the overall process. So I'm a fan of them and I'm also a fan of 2006 when we changed the scoring system. I think we also have a particularly good scoring system now compared to its earlier guys. Yep, I completely agree as well with the scoring system. Just a question, are the BWF looking into any kind of technology that will help them get an instant reading of how high the shuttle was struck above the ground? Not through particular technology to my knowledge. They are continuing to be able to develop the devices. Um, We're on Mark 2 or Mark 3 of the devices now and they certainly have improved them from the beginning stage they have to have some sort of portability. So when you pull them apart and return them together, they have to be put together accurately. And we do calibrate them for every event and for every day of the tournament. It's a bit like checking the net. So from my knowledge, there isn't a electronic or technology base to be able to work on that. I'm sure that they will continue to review, but at the moment it's the manual device. I think some of the things that we also discussed about is the umpire's chair because you have to be at a particular height and that can create some difficulty. But at the moment, it's the manual device. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, excellent. So, David, if we keep moving forward now into what you're doing right now, or not right now because of coronavirus, but in the present time, you are part of the Oceania Officials Committee and also part of the assessment panels for both Oceania and the BWF. What do these involve? Are you kind of the person that, says, okay, this person has potential, this person doesn't, or as an assessor itself, like what you were told back in Spain in 2001? So not quite. So the people that I, let's go to Oceana initially, but it's the same, largely a BWF. And from Oceana's point of view and from the world point of view, associations, countries, states, 
will nominate people that they believe are ready for assessment to go to the next level. Maybe it's from accredited to certificated in the Oceania region or locally or internationally moving from confederated umpires to international umpires. So they'll come from recommendations, although there are some times when we are communicated to say, you know, do you know the background or these are our recommendations about putting people forward and we might have some concerns and go back to the states or associations. My role largely is in Oceania is to oversee the assessment of people that are being presented that are at confederation level, like Australian level, who want to go to Oceania accredited or want to move from accredited to certification. And I might be one of the assessors that's actually making that assessment during an event. And I'm the one that will haul together the results from our assessment panel. I'm also involved in workshops and working with umpires to try and uh, continue to develop their skills. And in the international scene, my role will be as appraiser as well. So I will be sent to tournaments and I work with the umpires that are there to give them feedback about their performance during that tournament. I will also run workshops at those tournaments. And then when we do particular assessments, I'm one of the assessors that will decide whether they become international umpires or become Olympic level umpire. Wow, David, there's a lot of elements there to your role. And just to get a bit more of an understanding of the nature of the assessments, how you become a local or junior umpire and how you what the next steps or the pathway is to becoming an international umpire as well so would you be able to sort of take us through that pathway for our listeners and for myself absolutely henry so to be an umpire the beginning stages is to show an interest in the sport of badminton i and a number of other people around the country and around the world would run workshops to be able to go through the entire structure of both the rules in badminton and the recommendations to umpires. So we have a structured workshop that people would have to undertake. So they would come and do a, let's say it's working with me, they would come and do a full day workshop where we go through all of those things about learning about the rules of the game and recommendations about how an umpire might go around that. In my personal opinion, all badminton players should do this course because I think there's an awful lot of badminton players who think they know all the rules, but of course they don't specifically know all of them and they are being updated regularly, of course, as well. So we do the course, which is a um, a run through all of those things, as I've said. For the umpire then to progress as an umpire, they are required to sit an exam, a written exam, to demonstrate that they have understood their knowledge of the rules and recommendations to umpires. The entry-level exam is purely just a an overview of the basic rules and structures of the game. So it is an entry-level exam. We want people to come into the sport and to be able to umpire with a reasonable amount of knowledge but without necessarily the experience. And finally, to become an entry-level umpire qualified, you have to umpire a number of matches in the chair. That's a minimal number of matches in the chair with an assessor like myself just keeping an eye on you to make sure that we're comfortable that you have the skills up in the chair to be able to carry an umpiring. If you have done the course, if you have done the exam and if you've completed your minimum amount of umpires in the chair, you will progress to level one umpire which is confederation or, or national accredited umpire which is a level one umpire. To move from there to the next level where you might be able to support a state team or go to a um, major event around the country. You go from accredited to certificated and again there will be an assessment process there for those people to go to an event and be assessed by an assessor like myself. And then you could move, again, it's a certain amount of umpires 
and you then have to be able to demonstrate you have that ability to work at a higher level. So that becomes level two, which is now called national certificated. And then there is a, then a process to go to Oceana level, which would be the next level up. And you would also have to sit an exam at a higher level to be able to get to that point and it'd be assessed at an event to be able to say that you are, have the ability to umpire outside of just statewide Australian-wide badminton events, but umpire international events that we have throughout our country in New Zealand and internationally on the islands. And so that becomes the international stepping stone, which is Oceana, and they have an accredited level, and then we jump up to the certificated level. And if you're a certificated Oceana umpire, we would expect you to be able to umpire at any of our international events and with the potential of umpiring right through to finals. And if you've then had a regular minimum of two years at each of these levels, by the way, each of the levels you have to be there for two years, and at the end of two years as Oceana certificated, you might be recommended to be considered for BWF level. But to go to the BWF, you have to have had international experience both within our country and outside of the country on a regular basis before we will even consider putting you up for BWF assessment. Hmm. Okay, so it definitely sounds like there are a few stepping stones. So, David, just with the first ones, are they kind of just within Australia? So are they the Australian standards or are they kind of recommended by the BWF? And are they, so if I went to say Canada, for example, I just pulled out Canada from nowhere, but if I went to Canada, would the steps be very similar? So does the BWF kind of guide the countries as to, okay, what are the steps in your particular country and continent? And then you come together as a BWF umpire if you make it that far? BWF has a, a ground level overview of umpiring standards. There's going to be a slight tweaking between countries, but it's very similar throughout the world. So if you went to Canada, the umpiring course that you would do, and I have some colleagues in Canada, would be very similar to what you would do from an Australian point of view. The processes that we teach in our courses are basic online courses, and that information is all available online through BWF sites and uh, and apps that are available for you now. So you can download the BWF app, the Shuttle Time app, and access to all of those coaching and umpiring processes. So it is under the banner of BWF, but we have tweaked a little bit of the examination stuff. It might be a bit more specific to Australia, but we try to keep it consistent within the Oceania region. So Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands all do similar sorts of very similar, if not the same sort of basic structures to get to those levels. Pacific Islands is an interesting area. I mean, you know, can you imagine trying to develop our umpiring in Guam and uh, and Samoa and and you'd be amazed how much is actually happening in the Pacific Islands. It's a very, very exciting area at the moment, badminton is played. Yeah, definitely. We spoke to Julie Carroll, so CEO of Badminton Oceania, and she's been telling us how much work Badminton Oceania has been doing in the Pacific country. So that's fantastic. So David, if we were to, because there was quite a in-depth and detailed answer there as to the pathway, if you were able to do a timeline for us, just to sum that all up. So for example, if I was going to go for an umpiring role and I wanted to make it to the highest level that I possibly could in the BWF and be all around the world doing international events. And let's just say I passed every assessment the first time around and everything went perfectly, what would the timeline be? So two years of what, and then can you give us a bit of a, a rundown and a summary? So it's always, a, it's a very subjective answer in, in, to a large degree, Jeff, there, of course. It depends on your opportunities and your development. But let's say that in 2020 that you become a beginning level umpire 
um, at, the, at the ground level. So we would recommend two years at every particular level. So there's two years at level at Australian uh, accredited. There's two years at Australian certificated. There's two years at Oceana accredited. There's two years at Oceana certificated. So we're talking eight years at that particular point. There is some discussion, and this is discussion only, of the two tiers in BWF, but at the moment there are the two tiers. So after eight years, there is a good chance that you could be putting your hand up to be an international BWF qualified umpire and within a two-year time frame umpiring Olympics. So as a short answer to your question, the potential of going from zero to Olympics is around 10 years, which, you know, is a relatively small time if you think about that particular role. But you do have to offer a lot of time. You do have to give a lot of your time. You have to have the experience. And I can't recommend it highly enough. I, I've been very lucky to be involved in the sport. But, you know, what's my next weekend? I'm travelling to Hobart to umpire in a tournament. And uh, what did I do two weekends ago? I travelled to Deloraine to umpire in a tournament. And I give my time to do that. It's not a paid gig by any stretch of the imagination. But I love the people. I love the sport. And the opportunities that it's given me have been remarkable. So I've been very blessed. Yeah, definitely. And I guess from all badminton players from Australia and international, I think a lot of gratitude goes out to you. I I don't think it's sometimes it's actually openly spoken about or public about how grateful players are or should be towards the officials because without the officials, there's no events. So just from everyone, thank you, David, for spending all of that time, all of your spare time and all of the unpaid time that you're doing with badminton. And I guess when you talk about 10 years to the Olympics, if you think about if you're a player, it takes longer than 10 years to train and play to get to the Olympic Games as well. So I appreciate it from your side there. David, I just also wanted to jump into the last part that you spoke about was that kind of that rewarding nature of what you do and how you love it and what you're really passionate about in terms of the umpiring. So what is it about giving back and umpiring and being an official that you really enjoy, that really lights you up, that keeps you in it for this many years? So I'm going to talk about people. I've played a lot of sports, as I've said before, and I think that people that play different sports, we're all Australians or we're all New Zealanders or whoever. I have to say that I really love the people that play badminton. I find them a wonderful group of people to be with. I look back on my international career and I thought, you know, how fantastic I'm travelling to here, I'm travelling to there, I'm, I'm going to this major event. And I sort of realised that when I first got invited to go to Sudan Cup in China or to World Championships in wherever, what I did look was the list of see who else the umpires were going to be, to see who else was going to be there. The joy of being with people, with badminton people, is the number one for me. I actually love the game. I think it's a spectacular game. I think it's a a high-skilled game. It's an unbelievably fitness game. I'm talking to the converted here. But I think the game is superb. I love travel. Don't get me wrong. The opportunity to be in different parts of the world and different parts of the country. And as a young person, every year for 11 years, I travelled to a different part of Australia for the national championships and underage. And I did 16 times I represented Tasmania at different levels. So it was all over the country. And I really love that. But, you know, we've got a site happening on Facebook at the moment of photos back from my day. People are putting up and there's these people I haven't seen for ages and it's really lovely to connect with those people. And I'll give you, you asked about anecdotes, a little quick story on my final, because I'm not a BWF umpire now. They actually retire BWF umpires at the age of 55. It is what it is. I have a question mark. And in my last two years as an international umpire, I umpired Olympic Games, medal rounds, world championships, finals, 
Sudamon Cup, uh, Thomas Aduba finals. I umpired the highest possible level and I was at the peak of my game. And as soon as the year of my 55, 55th year happened, I stopped. They cut it off. I was probably at the, the highest part of and peak of my career, but it's what it is. There's a perception of the speed of the game, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad that that happened from an umpiring point of view. So at my final event, which was the Danish Open, which is a wonderful tournament, there was a farewell for me, which was really nice from my colleagues and the BWF president came and spoke with me and, and that was really lovely. Oh, by the way, I played the guitar at the function. That's another story. I was going to say, did they play for you this time? No, no, no I played. <laughs> but one of my colleagues got up and spoke, you know, and they offered me a couple of gifts, which was just wonderful. And he said, I think I've only been to three tournaments with David, but I feel like I've known him all my life. And that was the sentiment from one of my colleagues. And yes, we'd only had three tournaments together at different parts of the world. And you travel away and you might not see a colleague for five years and your your relationship with those colleagues is just superb. I'm delighted to be back on the BWF circuit in the um, in the role of assessor. Having said that, I guess I haven't been on the circuit because we haven't been away this year. But I do look forward to the opportunity. So within Tasmania, I have friends all over the state and people come and talk to me about badminton and they look me in the eye and they listen to me. Do I know all the answers? No, of course not. Have I learned some stuff? Well, yes, I have. So people come and talk with me about badminton and uh, I'm part of the Tasmanian team. I've been Tasmanian umpire, goodness knows. I did a rough calculation. I think I've been to 35 Clendon Shields over my <laughs> life. So it's <laughs> possibly slightly more than that now. Player, coach, umpire. And there are all these people that I spend time with both in Australia and internationally. I love the game. I love being involved in the game. I contribute where I can. I'm a state selector. I'm on the board of Tasmania Badminton. As you said, I'm an international umpire. I'm an international assessor. And I've been coaching badminton in schools with preps in this last week. So lots of different stuff. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it, guys. So really the highest and the most beginner levels as well, like that spectrum and that range you've been involved with is amazing. David, did you ever consider going into refereeing, is that something that is a transition from umpiring or is it a different kind of kettle of fish? Oh, no, I think it's very much a transition for a number of people. So we've had the majority, not all, but the majority of our referees had involvement in umpiring. That knowledge of the game and knowledge of the understanding of processes working with people. And yes, there's a number of times I've had the discussion from a personal point of view about going into the refereeing and my personal thoughts are is that I'm, I have a greater desire to stay at the coalface. I am still umpiring in the chair. I was invited to umpire World Juniors in New Zealand. If that goes ahead, I'll be umpiring. I umpire the Australian Open. I umpire the local D grade and the juniors. It doesn't matter where I umpire, I like umpiring. Um, so I made the decision to stay at the coalface. And so my area of work is becoming now the mentoring and the assessing and working with umpires and trying to develop umpiring. The refereeing is absolutely essential and we could desperately do with more people who are willing to go into that area because they run the events and you just need people to be the leaders, to run events, to do the structures of the drawer, to do the processes of putting it all in place for an event. And I give referees a huge, huge pat on the back. And largely we have one guy in Tasmania who's refereeing virtually every tournament and that's a huge ask from that person. The buck stops, you know. We could do with more umpires, there is no question, but we need to really support our referees because they are keeping the game going. Yeah. David, that kind of leads me on to my next question. We definitely agree that the badminton community is such an important 
part of the enjoyment of the sport, whether you're a court official or a badminton player or just a badminton lover or an enthusiast or, or fan. So what we wanted to ask here is that you said it's a relatively short time, 10 years to become internationally recognized or international umpire. And yes, it is a relatively short time, but it does seem like ultimately it does take 10 years for someone to get there. And I'm not sure if you do have your own actual stats. And uh, you just mentioned that referees and umpires, there, there might be a bit of a shortfall there and that we do want to keep getting people involved in the sport on that level. In terms of how many umpires, how many referees there are in Oceania, are we looking at a quite a significant shortfall at the moment? So, again, I'll come back to my 10 years, and that frightens me you know, to talk about that. The amount of people that will go from zero to Olympic Games in 10 years are very small. And so you do have to devote time. But when you consider that from a playing perspective, the amount of people that will go from beginning playing to Olympic level in 10 years are, are virtually zero. So badminton is a, is a passion in life and it's something you can do. I would really encourage anybody that takes up the sport of badminton to do an umpire's course. And I've said that earlier. I think you would learn about the game. If you come to our national carnivals, certainly the Clendenin Shield and the Australian Carnival, which is our senior event, the players virtually don't umpire any matches at all. It's umpired by umpires. And that's wonderful and it should be that way. But we are struggling to be able to maintain that. So within Tasmania, we have a smaller number of qualified umpires than we did have once upon a time, and some of us are not getting any younger. We have a number of states that have almost at the point of having no umpires, no qualified umpires, or very few. Having said that, you know, we are developing people all the time in most of the states, and we have qualified some new people over the last few years and are moving through the process. But we could definitely do with more people at every level. One of the areas we haven't touched on is line judging. I was a line judge at Sydney Olympics, as you mentioned earlier, and that arguably was one of the best events of my life. I think the Sydney Olympics was the best event I've ever been to. But again, to be at the coalface, to be on the court, was just wonderful. There is a very clear career path for lines judges, and that can go from local to national to Oceania to BWF line judging, and we do have BWF line judges in Australia. So that's another career path. Refereeing, probably slightly smaller number of people putting their hands up there, but we are qualifying new referees at, uh, you know, still currently, but in every aspect of, in every part of the country, we could do with more people who would be willing to work in these areas. I can only say that from an umpiring point of view, whether you make it to BWF or not, it's really enjoyable. It's something you can do and you can continue on beyond maybe your playing career at a high level or playing career at whatever level you play. I umpired while I was playing at my top level, but it's kept me in the game and I've really loved it. So I am and we are looking for officials all the time to keep developing our sport. Yeah. And I guess going back to what you just said then, David, is that if we could get more former players, whatever level, to get into the umpiring scene or the court official kind of things, because we usually see them going into coaching. So personally, myself, I'm not playing so much and I'm doing some coaching. And I think that's a very common pathway for many former players. Do you think there's a way that, say, national federations, state federations, or even the BWF can make it more attractive for former players to get into the umpiring side of things or court official side of things? Attractive is an interesting word, and you know, how do you make it 
uh, attractive for people, you know, and people don't want to put themselves out there and, and so I'm not going to put myself under that sort of pressure to get up in the chair. I think it needs to be continued to be encouraged and I'll throw a different, slightly different answer to that. I'm not going to, I don't know the answer to attractive, but my humble opinion, again, I come back to the fact that everybody should do an umpire's course. I know that for some years in Tasmania, and it hasn't returned for a few years now, but all of our state underage teams completed the umpire's course as part of their squad trainings over a period of whatever period of time, they all did the umpire's course. So if we introduce the umpire's course to all of our underage players, just running through the course, and it doesn't have to be a four hours of the whole bit, but going through the course, you know, and in a session we allocate half an hour, an hour, one week over a period of three or four weeks and encourage them to all at the beginning of their playing have some experience of umpiring, then I think that would make umpiring possibly less daunting. Also, I hope that it would show the players, one, the role of the umpire, and two, how important it is to have people there. So I think that's one thing. I also think that I, and I'm trying to do a little bit likely, go into club level and uh, and offer the opportunity for them to do courses or to be able to just be a, a mentor somewhere around and talk about umpiring and continue to get people involved with umpiring. I think that, that all players should have the experience and to learn about it. By doing it, one, you find that it might be something you're interested in, and two, I think you have a, a respect for the person that does do the role. Yeah. And I think there might be some players out there or fans of the sport that might have some reservations about going down the pathway of becoming a court official. Now, David, are there any sort of common misconceptions that you think that you generally hear about or know of that might hinder someone's you know, thoughts in going down that pathway? Um, look, I suppose you're always going to be a bit under the threat of someone going to um, give you a hard time on the court. There's some challenges. I've worked with some challenging players. Again, I'll come back to an early comment. I do like badminton players and I think badminton people are really lovely to work with. So as a general rule for the majority of the umpiring I do certainly within our country, I have not major issues with people um, being unkind to me as an umpire. There's certainly some challenges internationally and it's a profession and it's their livelihood. I sort of feel that people um, maybe don't consider it as an enjoyable activity and uh, I'll come back again to the fact that I spend time with people. I spend time travelling around the countryside, both interstate and intrastate and now internationally and it's a really lovely collegial thing to be able to do and there's some wonderful, wonderful people who are doing some umpiring around the place and once people get involved, they realise the support of people around them. So there is a lot of support from a small group of experienced people that would, would certainly assist you if you had any interest to be able to go into that area and look I ask you to go and talk to the people going there are people in your clubs that you've seen doing some umpiring and if you, you know, we, we are going to talk about how to get into it go and talk to your local people and uh, get up in the chair and have a go one day but do a course I think that would make a difference to people's understanding yeah definitely Dave when you go back to the say the stressful times or maybe the daunting times where they're maybe is a bit of conflict on the court. Is there anything that comes to mind that you can tell us a story about that's happened? You don't have to say players' names, of course, but um, is there experience that you can share with us? Well, look, you know, I, I'll go back to Seville, my very first, when I was being assessed for the very first time at that level, and, uh, and I've had in-your-face comments from uh, players about, you know, you, you should have called that fault or you didn't call that fault, the service fault thing that we talked about earlier. I can just picture, and it was a German player who uh, didn't use quite his voice, 
when they turned to me and told me their thoughts. That's fairly intimidating, but it's it's what it is. So I'm not going to go too far into it, but I do have a story of a national level, not 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 international level, but a national level of a particularly particularly challenging game that I umpired pre-cards. So you understand that we have a yellow card and a red card in my pocket that I can use as a warning and at fault for points today. This is pre-cards. And it was a particularly um, challenging match. And my line judge was copying it and I was copying it and we copped it after the game. And so it's something I'll remember forever in my day. It was an unpleasant time. Along the way, you know, I umpired the bronze medal match at uh, mixed doubles at uh, London. And I had the Danes versus the Indonesians. And the Danes are, let's say, very competitive. You can read between the lines if you like. But, you know, very passionate about the way they play. And credit to them, a small country who have arguably the best European country in the world. And they were very keen. And and so I was given this particular match. Uh, The final, the the gold medal playoff was China versus China, which was never going to be quite as demanding as the the mixed doubles bronze, which was uh, uh, Indonesia and Denmark. So... That was always a little bit, um, I was a bit concerned about that match, but I have to say the Danes kept their nose in front for the whole time, which made my life just that little bit easier. So, you know, I umpired, um, again, Danish versus uh, a player that you might have heard of, a guy called Lee Chong Wei, in the Danish Open, and uh, and the Danish player was regularly not happy with the fact that I made calls and uh, he told me to worry about my umpiring and not call faults over the net. Or um, <laughs> So, you know, when you have the passion of the game, the passion of everything's going wants to go your way and so the players will continue to keep you on your toes. That's the sort of thing. Well, I did a World Juniors once come to mind, I did the World Juniors and, again, the Danes, both the player and the coaches were coming rushing to my chair and telling me their thoughts. So, you know, you've got uh, a little bit of intimidation there. Basically, you smile and just put your hand up and say, you know, I don't speak, you know, go away. <laughs> Keep it rolling. Yeah. Yep. So I guess that's probably a common thing that a lot of umpires deal with at any kind of level and I guess that not the word fear, but just that back thought that there could be some really difficult times during a match where there's a bit of conflict there. So I know that you talk about the community and how important the officials are in basically supporting each other and the lifelong friends that you make, but for someone getting into it and they haven't had a real a heavy taste of what it can be like on the court in the heat of the moment, is there much support for the officials, say, psychologically or in a group setting where you can talk about things and talk about how to manage things and support each other? Um, and I'm going to say a number of things, you know, to answer all the questions. The answer is yes. I'm going to come back to grassroots and I would hope that people like myself and the experienced umpires around would continue to be able to be available to talk and many of us will actually um, instigator, you know, a chat with umpires, um, you know, to be able to support them. I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum and that even though it's quite a social event, one of the key gatherings that we have internationally, we call them a technical meeting. Now, a technical meeting is is after the event in somebody's hotel room and, yes, there may be just the odd glass of wine, but the technical meeting is basically getting together umpires and we just do talk. You do talk about particular spots, about particular events, about particular points, and badminton is that link together. We do those in workshops all the time and talk about issues and how you might deal with issues. But one of the key things that we work with our umpires is to be able to develop their ability to be able to sense any particular issues and see if you can do something to be able to 
prevent it happening so that you don't get to the point where we have difficulties. And that's when you see the good level umpires who are able to sense that there could be something in brewing and to settle it down before it becomes a problem. Yeah, it's great that there is that support and almost like a debrief afterwards so that if these umpires or junior umpires or even senior umpires are getting challenging situations or stressful or put under stressful situations in the heat of the moment or because of how passionate some of these players are on court. And I suppose it's important to try and empathise with how they're feeling on court as well, but to make it a sort of a sound way of responding to them as an umpire. And I'm sure that's a really challenging aspect. But um, now, David, for someone who's listening and, and considering becoming an official, is there, if you had to say something to them, what would that be? Look, first and foremost, I'd say uh, give it a try. It is been something that has been a joy for my life. And look, many people have got up in the chair and found, oh, this is okay. Unless you've had the opportunity to be able to actually umpire, unless you've got somebody behind you supporting you, then you may not know, know that experience. For me, for my family, it has been an opportunity in my life to be able to maintain my contact with my sport I love, but to also open up doors, which I would never, if we'd have had this conversation 25 years ago, there was no way that I saw in my life that I was going to do the things that I'm doing now. Will you all become international level umpires? Well, no, but you know, the potential of supporting an event when it comes to your state and working with a collegial group of umpires is so much fun. And who knows, if you do have that desire, there is, as I've already stated, a clear pathway for you to be able to go through the ranks and work at any level you would like to strive for. I also believe that, you know, as people, we need to support our sport as much as we can. We love to go and play badminton. It is wonderful, and people play badminton for large parts of their lives. Small numbers of people continue to be able to support it in administrative processes and in official processes. If we could increase that by a tiny percentage, then our sport will continue to thrive. There is a great deal of work happening in Tasmania at the moment to try and promote badminton. You heard me talk about sport in schools and so on. We are trying very hard to move forward, and I have to and plan to continue to see if I can push the official side as well because we need to develop that. We just need some more people to be involved, but I say have a go. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of the times we're always, I wouldn't say blinded, but we're always focused on high level, right? We're always looking at the top events, Olympic Games, World Championships, Super 1000s, etc. But then sometimes not realizing or not recognizing how important it is for that grassroots kind of stuff, right? Where all the things wouldn't happen up at that high level if there wasn't the grassroots development of players, the grassroots coaches, the officials, the umpires, just at the local level, then the state level. And then it's just such a big working machine that we're going to have to improve in every aspect of in order to make badminton a bigger and better and more recognized sport around the world. So that's awesome advice, David, for people who maybe haven't tried umpiring or being an official and they want to get into it. But if you could offer one piece of advice for someone who's already an umpire, for example, if you can relate to a time where you've had to make a call and potentially, if you look back, you might have made a different call, how did you get past that? How do you build that resilience? And for someone struggling with maybe a call that they made or they're looking back and think, oh, this isn't for me, what piece of advice would you have for them? Okay, I mean, I'm a human being. Have I made the correct decisions all of the time? Of course not. 
and yes, I would review my performance and think I umpired well today or I didn't umpire as well today. I personally have a challenge to myself that I want a clean game. That means I'm not going to call a wrong score. I'm not going to create by my approach a problem. You have to deal with them, but my role is that if I have had a tough game, the bottom line is I'm going to go and talk to colleagues, certainly talking to people and having that support of people around me. The other thing that I, you know, helped me develop my own stuff is to watch other umpires. And during the Sydney Olympics, I coordinated for the line judges, David Hoppen, knew I was umpiring and was moving to that level. He said, watch these two umpires, they're very good. And I think watching was something that I learnt. But hey, as a player, don't we do the same thing? Shouldn't you watch the good players and see what they do? So I think from that point of view, you can watch good operators in the chair. And there are a number of them around the world that I've watched over time. And there's no question I have improved as an umpire. I have a little quote and I said this, if every player made as many mistakes as an umpire, then they would be the best player in the world. So as an umpire, if I make a mistake, I apologise, I fix it up and I move forward. If I make a decision and it's sometimes found out to be maybe the wrong decision or I might have done it in a different way, that is life. None of us are going to go through life without doing something that we think, oh, I could have done that better. But from the umpiring point of view, I overcome that relatively quickly from the point of view of chatting with people, looking at me, trying to better what I do. But, you know, umpiring is there to, I really enjoy umpiring local tournaments because I work with the juniors sometimes and maybe I can offer one bit of advice or slow them down or say, no, this is how the rule works. They might learn from me there. I umpired a C or a D grade men's doubles just recently and they said, oh, you know, it's not what you normally umpire. I said, yeah, it's fantastic for me because I don't know the four players. I have to concentrate really hard with what you're doing and here's my advice, your service action isn't so good. So I can offer some support to the game. Can you imagine if we had people that played badminton and working with our juniors as an umpire every tournament and they would be supporting them there? Our game is going to grow from that. But if you ask me about if you make an error, you make an error. I've been proved right a few times when people have said, oh, that wasn't a good call, and, uh, and I've been proved it was a good call. So there's going to be a few of those as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay, David, so we've definitely got into it pretty deeply as to how to become an umpire and the perks around it and all the great things and also the things that are trickier as well, which is just life, right? Everything that we do you're not going to be perfect in everything that you do. But is there anything else, David, that you want to add before we start wrapping up here? Is there a question we haven't asked? Well, I mean, you, you talk about volunteering times and uh, there's no question that I've reached into my back pocket to be able to support the umpiring that I have done. Having said that, you know, there is more and more work happening to be able to support people putting their hands up to umpire to offer some level of support in a small financial way. You go to a national carnival and they will provide you with meals. That's a nice thing. That's a bit of support to what we're able to do. There is not a huge amount of money. I don't get a wage. I'm an international umpire. I've umpired all the world. I don't get a wage. But once I get to that international level, basically my expenses are all covered. So it's not coming out of my pocket to go. But, you know, when I was teaching full-time, I had to take leave. And that was a challenge. But, you know, bit by bit, there is a little more support coming. Some states has a little bit more financial support than others. But, you know, if that's a major concern, there is a little bit of support coming out from there. That's something we haven't discussed. No, you're not going to make a big wage and, yes, you're going to offer a bit of time. 
But, you know, you can do that in all sorts of ways. What do you offer time to? Do you sit at home and watch the TV or do you get out and be involved in the sport? So, um, again, I would encourage people to consider it, but talk to people and let's keep badminton going. Awesome. Okay. First of all, we just want to say thank you so much from Henry and myself. Thank you so much for being an awesome guest on the podcast today. Well, look, thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity. I know that you have players that are playing, people that are playing, and I want you to keep doing that. And I have listened to some of the others and really enjoyed, and I'm going to look forward to some more. But I think to be able to have an official person on is a really positive thing that you're doing. So congratulations to you both with what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. So this is usually the part of the podcast where we wrap up and we say things such as from Henry and myself, thanks for tuning into this episode and to make sure you share this episode with everyone that you know. And then we usually talk about how to get in contact with us, which is usually via our website, www.volantware.com or through our social media handle at Volantware, V-O-L-A-N-T-W-E-A-R. And then we usually talk about reaching out to us and asking us any questions because a lot of people ask us some questions and we love answering them and we quite often get guests on the podcast to answer. And the answers are great because they're coming from so many different people from all over the world and at all different levels, especially professional levels. But David, with your awesome music and improvising skills, I was going to challenge you to see whether you could wrap up this podcast in a similar way with those similar things and add your little personal touch. And that would be awesome. This is the first time we've done this at the end of a podcast. Well, look, you know, I mean, what is it going to be? So I'm going to uh, to finish with a bit of improvised podcast blues. How does that sound? That sounds awesome. (laughs) So this is just making up. Who knows what's going to come out of my mouth. We'll just see what happens. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here today. It's been a joy to be on the podcast. So here we go with the podcast blues for you. A big thank you to Jeff and Henry for having me on. That is awesome. That was awesome. awesome. Can we invite you to the end of every podcast? (laughs) Give me a buzz. (laughs) We'll have to re-record our introduction with you, David. It can be the official badminton podcast introduction from now on. Oh, yeah. Let's let's write a song, you know. Um, It's possible. It's music, hey? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and it's gone hand in hand with what I've done with badminton. I literally have made up songs uh, a little like that all over the world too. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so thanks very much again, David. And for everyone listening, thanks for listening. And let's tune in to our next episode next time. Till then, see you later. Stay safe and keep playing. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone. This podcast was brought to you by Volantware, the most versatile badminton apparel you'll ever own.